Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Now, this week we're going to revisit a series that Dr. John did called The Mysteries of the Cross. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Why Did Christ Have to Die? During this week, we're going to be studying the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. I've called this study the Mysteries of the Cross. For one week, we're going to plumb some of the depths of the meaning of Christ's bloody sacrifice on the cross. We will learn why it is that any life that does not place a bloodstained cross at the center of all that it loves is a life that's eternally lost. So where do we start? Let's start today by examining the matter of sacrifices. Since the beginning of fallen human experience, human beings have been offering up sacrifices. The first one is recorded in Genesis 4, where both Cain and Abel offer sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is an animal sacrifice. Fascinatingly enough, we're not told why he offered up an animal as a sacrifice, but there seems to be a very clear understanding in the Bible text that this was both an act of worship and that the sacrifice was required. Well, whatever the reason, we are told that God accepted Abel's animal sacrifice and the act seemed to testify that all was well between God and Abel. The next recorded incident of animal sacrifice follows immediately after the flood. Noah has just come out of the ark and the floodwaters have receded and Genesis 8, 20-21 records, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, clearly, in this record of animal sacrifice, we do see an act of worship. The sacrifice of clean or acceptable animals is an expression of gratitude for Noah's deliverance from the flood. But in this act, there is also an atonement. With the sacrifice, God's anger expressed in the flood is placated, and even though human hearts remain what they were before the flood and were deserving of further wrath, the sacrifice was enough to ensure that such an event would never happen again. Sacrifice in some fashion, and in this text we're not told how, but in some fashion satisfies God's anger. And so very early on in the human experience, we can see not only that human beings have been sacrificing animals to God, but from the very beginning of the human story, that animal sacrifices involve two things, worship and an atonement for sins. You know, as the human story progresses, it should not surprise us then that all human civilizations have practiced the sacrifice of sacred animals. The ancient Egyptians practiced it. Ancient Mesopotamian cultures practiced it. We find the practice in very primitive African cultures. The idea of sacrifice is found in most of the world's religions. Some still practice it today. In fact, in the ancient world, the sacrifice of animals was a universal practice of worship. It seems that human beings almost intuitively understood the need to do this. Of course, because the human race is fallen and alienated from God, the reason for sacrifices would become distorted. In some cultures, there was the idea that the gods were hungry and that sacrifices provided the gods with food. In fact, in Psalm 50, we learn that this pagan view was creeping into the Israelite way of thinking. 
And so in Psalm 50, verses 12 to 13, God says, If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You know, clearly as time goes by, people continue to sacrifice animals, but their reasons for doing it becomes profane. Eventually, the Canaanites, as one example, would practice human sacrifices and with its satanic and occultic rituals would bring terror and horror to cultures. We know, for instance, that the Mayans would do the same. We know that the Bible is very clear on this matter. Deuteronomy 18 verse 10 says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. However, in spite of this clear warning, the matter seems not to have taken root. In my way of thinking, it seems quite likely that Jephthah, recorded in Judges 11, sacrificed his daughter on an altar in a misguided vow and in complete ignorance of God and his ways. We also know that the practice of human sacrifice was practiced by at least one of the kings of Judah. 2 Kings 16 verse 3 tells of the wicked king Ahaz who burned his son as an offering. The text says he was imitating the practices of the nations around him, so it's clear that this was a widely accepted practice. Now, the reason I bring this matter up is that while animal sacrifices from the beginning of time were a holy practice, like all human practices of worship, sin and corruption twists and turns the matter into something of unspeakable horror. But that matter aside, there can be no doubt that the practice of sacrifice is rooted in the human experience of worship. We as sinful human beings, yet made in the image of God, seem to know that this kind of a thing is required before God. And that's why Genesis 22 comes as a surprise as God calls upon Abraham, strangely enough, to sacrifice his son. But it's not long into the account that we realize that this very event brings us to an astonishing conclusion. Because God intervenes and Abraham's son is saved, we're left wondering why God would command that which he was determined to prevent. And as we examine the text, we find that in order for Isaac to survive, a substitute had to be given for his life. So God provides a ram which gets stuck in a thicket, and the ram is butchered on the altar and then burnt, telling us a great deal about the sacrifice of animals and the symbols it provides. Animal sacrifices tells us that the animal is a symbol. They symbolize that the offering of an animal is a picture, that a life must be sacrificed in exchange for the life that is saved. God demands sacrifice, one life for another. All sacrifices then serve as a substitution, one life for the other. And it is the sacrifice of animals that reminds us that it, this exchange must take place. If we are to be saved from the righteous hand of an offended God, a substitute must be offered. Well, the next great moment in the story of the sacrifice of animals in the Bible comes during the time of the Passover. Israel has been in Egyptian slavery, and God announces that he will set his people free. In order to deliver them from slavery, God is about to send the angel of death who is going to visit every household in Egypt and destroy every firstborn in every single house. Now, in the ancient world, the firstborn was a sign of strength and virility, and thus the firstborn spoke of the ability of a family and of a culture to reproduce itself. The firstborn was the sign of future prosperity. 
God was going to rain death down on Egypt by destroying Egypt's future. And when we read the text carefully, we find out that Israel, as the chosen people of God, are not exempt from judgment. Indeed, many years later, God would reveal exactly what was the character of the national life of Israel while they were living in Egypt. I'm reading Ezekiel 20, verses 6 to 8. On that day, I swore to them that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, the most glorious of all lands. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things that your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them and spend my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. It becomes quite evident that the story of the Exodus is not a story that God favors the poor and powerless over the rich, nor is it a story that Israel was in some fashion morally superior to Egypt. Furthermore, The story of the Exodus is not a story that God was in some fashion more provoked and more angry with Egypt than he was with Israel. All of those conclusions are wrong. And by the way, all of those conclusions have been used by some Bible teachers when teaching the Exodus story. But the Bible denies these interpretations of the Exodus event. So what really happened there? See, the reason why the angel of death fell on Egypt and did not fall on Israel, is all about the sacrifice and the slaughter of a Passover lamb. The only distinction between these two groups of people is that one of them had sacrificed lambs that night and taken the blood of the slaughtered animals and smeared that blood on the door frames of their houses. The only house the angel of death refrained from punishing was the house of the family that was covered with the blood of sacrifice. A substitute Passover lamb is the only reason that Israel was led out of slavery into freedom. God's anger was spared to those who sacrificed. Our friend and monthly partner, Ellen, wrote us this note. The Bible teaching I received from Back to the Bible is of an outstanding caliber, and Dr. John Newfeld's delivery of the content is thoughtful, honest, and clear. I'm so happy that the program is available to me daily in my home and to others across Canada. I want it to continue, and that's why I chose to become a monthly partner. Ellen, among hundreds of others, have chosen to join our Partner to Tell monthly partnership program. Their gifts every month have become the backbone to this and all of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. If you value the teaching of Dr. Neufeld, the encouragement from Laugh Again, or the importance of in doubt speaking into the lives of young people, would you join this important group today? Become a Back to the Bible Canada Partner to Tell monthly partner by calling one 800 663 2425 or visit backtothebible.ca After the events of Passover, God leads Israel through the Sinai Desert until they come to the foot of Mount Sinai. We know that encounter best because it was there that Israel received the Ten Commandments. But God called Israel to remain in front of the mountain for two full years. 
During that time, they built a tabernacle for worship, and during that time, they learned to put the worship of sacrifice to very exacting standards. The book of Leviticus was written during those two years in the shadow of the mountain. There the nation was to learn what kinds of animals were acceptable as a sacrifice, the manner in which they were to be offered, where they were to be offered, who had the right to offer animals on behalf of the people, and the occasions when offerings were to be made. Israel is then given a calendar in which seven holy feasts are to be celebrated throughout the year. Each of them include the ongoing practice of sacrificing. For instance, every fall was to include the Day of Atonement, in which the high priest was to confess the sins of Israel over the head of a goat, and that goat was to be considered a sin-bearer. But here we need to notice something essential to our study. A careful reading of the Old Testament indicates that the Bible never taught that the sacrifice of animals would in some way remove sins. You know, often I'll hear uninformed Christians say that, well, in the Old Testament, people got their sins forgiven by sacrificing animals, but that was never the case. The Old Testament law specified two different kinds of sins. Numbers 15.22 begins with the words, but if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commands. And then the passage goes on to say that in regards to unintentional sins, offerings are to be made. To the most part, These unintentional sins deal with matters that include ritual purity, but there is no ultimate ethical considerations. The other kind of sins that are mentioned in the law are the deliberate sins, or more literally, the high-handed sins. The idea is that the hand is held up high in the shape of a fist. They are the defiant sins against God. And the Old Testament contains examples of what it has in mind. For instance, Leviticus 20 gives a list of them including visiting mediums and necromancers, worshiping idols, committing adultery, committing a number of other sexual sins. Numbers 35 mentions murder, we could go on and on, showing in effect that breaking the Ten Commandments are never considered as unintentional sins, but every single breaking of the Ten is a defiant sin against God, the the kind with a fist raised, the kind that nothing in the temple with its sacrifices of animals could ever atone for. We see that clearly in Psalm 51, where King David is confessing his sins of adultery and murder. In verse 16, he says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. He means that he understands that for such sins, there is no animal sacrifice that can atone. And that's also why in the New Testament, in Hebrews 10.4, it makes the matter quite plain. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So if that's true, why then did God require such things? There are at least two reasons for them. First, the sacrifice reminded Israel that God is holy and that the matter of sin cannot be taken lightly. You can't just tell God you're sorry. Sins cannot be dealt with without sacrifice or without a substitute. Sins demand payment and payment must be made. Second, The sacrifices in the temple are also a reminder that sin demands the shedding of blood. Indeed, Hebrews 9.22 teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Oh, how we need to hear that today. Sin demands the shedding of blood. Again, being sorry for sin is not enough. Repentance for sins, committing ourselves to reform our ways, none of that's enough. Even as we would never say to a murderer, oh, if you say you're sorry, well, I guess you can go free, so also 
God would never say that to a sinner either. Sin demands the shedding of blood, or to put it in language we can all understand, the wages of sin is death. Now, we add to that one more thought. Every one of us has committed high-handed sins. We have all, in brazen arrogance, lifted our hands in a clenched fist of defiance before God and walked over his boundary marker in defiance of his ways. Romans 3.9 says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned. And Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Blood must be shed. And that's the reason we can never say, well, perhaps all religions lead to God. See, if they do, then we must explain how they, those other religions, deal with the problem that sin demands the shedding of blood. And if we had time, we could see that no other religion even discusses how it is that sins can be removed. No, not a commitment to reform our ways will do, or a commitment to give ourselves to certain standards or a commitment to walk in a given way. No, those things cannot deal with the sin problem. Sin demands the shedding of blood. A righteous and holy God is not satisfied with anything less. Sin has left a mark, a scar, a separating wall between the worshiper and God, and the very nature of it demands the pouring out of life. The wages of sin is death. Ultimately, however, All the sacrifices in the temple were, in a sense, prophetic. Sometimes Bible teachers use words like type and anti-type. They mean that the sacrifice of animals are an image of something. But until that something is revealed, we're not sure what the image represents. I say all of this because we know that at the center of the Christian faith is the cross of Jesus, which from the very beginning... The cross has been depicted as a sacrifice. It's the anti-type, the very thing that all the sacrifices of the temple and all the animal sacrifices from the beginning of time were looking forward to. Jesus hanging on the cross is what Abel looked forward to. Jesus on the cross is why God could tell Noah that he would never destroy the world with a flood again. Jesus on the cross is Abraham's ram stuck in the thicket and would provide a substitute for the life of his son Isaac. Jesus is the Passover lamb that was slain, and only his blood provided safety from the messenger of death. And the cross is the fulfillment of every sacrifice that ever took place in the Old Testament temple. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3 records the apostle Paul as saying, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance to the Scripture. Since Paul says this is of first importance, it must mean that the importance of the cross outstrips the importance of the Sermon on the Mount, or of Christ's deeds of healing, or of the ethical demands of the kingdom, or anything else that is taught in the Christian faith. The majesty of Christmas pales in comparison to the majesty of a cruel, blood-stained altar of sacrifice erected on Golgotha. Everything, all the long history of sacrifice, was leading to one pivotal moment, the ultimate sacrifice, the Son of God hanging on a cross. Since all the animal sacrifices in the world could not take away sin, this moment is the culmination of everything else. 
without a cross, without the shedding of the blood of Christ, there is no salvation from the angel of death. If his blood is not shed for me, then I must shed my own blood. If he has not suffered the wrath of God, then I must suffer the wrath of God. If he is not substituted for me, then I must face the full fury of an incensed and angry and righteous God. The cross ends the argument whether all religions lead to God. The cross ends the argument of whether God will take sins lightly. The cross ends the argument about what kind of a God we have. The cross is the only eternal hope for anyone. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no salvation, no heaven. Indeed, without his blood, there is only guilt and damnation in hell. And that's what the cross teaches us. See, during this week, I want to explore the mysteries of the cross. I think that some of us have become accustomed to viewing the cross from a very shallow perspective. Many of us have never plumbed the depths of the cross, nor viewed it from the perspective of mystery. When I say mystery, I don't mean things that we can't understand. God has revealed to us the meaning of the cross. What I mean when I use the word mystery is that the more we reflect upon the sufferings and the agony of Jesus, the more we will see. There are things within the cross that surprise us and help us to see that all of my life, once I am in Christ, is directly related to Christ's sufferings. The mystery is the ever-deepening truths that the more I gaze at this picture of torments, the more I understand the love of God, the Son of Man, and the Son of God hanging on a tree. John, this is a great beginning to an incredible series, something we all need to talk about. But I can see some of the objections already in respect to the sacrifice theme, the violence that's involved, the blood, all these terrible things that are happening, all for the sake of love? Yeah. You know, it's amazing that, you know, for those of my listeners who haven't read the Bible a lot, let me give you a little, you know, spoiler alert, and that is the Bible is an awfully violent book. Uh, you know, from the very beginning, I mentioned the story of the flood, but, you know, that sacrificial ritual throughout the Old Testament, it just seems like there is a river of blood flowing from the temple. And I think we are meant to understand that sin, which we sometimes so easily pass by as a mistake or something of that nature, is in fact a very violent act. There is no act more vile than that which transgresses God's command. And so the blood that is shed and everything else seems to indicate exactly that. It's an accurate picture of what our sin, in fact, deserves. Thanks, John. And tomorrow we continue in our series talking about Jesus as our substitute. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We teach the Bible. That's the core of everything we strive to do at Back to the Bible Canada. It's the Bible that provides us everything we need to know about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the power of the Holy Spirit, about the promise of eternity, and so much more. In July, Dr. John Newfeld will be focusing his attention on the Bible on our Truth and Life Today program. It's authenticity, it's trustworthiness, it's importance and significance to every believer. Join us on Joy TV Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. Pacific, Sundays at 1.30 p.m. Pacific, on YouTube at truthandlifetoday.com or by downloading the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. 
The Bible is critical to the faith of every believer. Join us in discovering so much more. And for everything else you need to know about Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.